Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello and welcome to part two of two, the special edition of Bilge Pumps with Michael Clapp as our special guest. Um, we are, of course, discussing today the future of amphibious warfare, and this will begin at the 57-minute mark of the discussion. The discussion was two and a half hours long, and I've broken it up into two overlapping, roughly 80- to 90-minute discussions. Hope you enjoy part two as much as I, I, we enjoyed making it, and thank you for listening. But it's what do you procure when you start procuring? What are you doing? As Jamie said, we were talking about mines a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, and Australia is now procuring them, but as we all know, they're not, as you said, they're not the sexy things you procure in peace normally. So I guess that starts off with Michael responding, because, you know, it, what would have been the if fearless had been lost, what would have been, what would the issues have been? Well, he, he, you made sure that it wasn't, though, didn't you? <laughs> um, well, the, I, I thought we might well be lost. I thought the chances were really quite high. So intrepid with her ops room and everything like that was i hope because i never managed to go across and see set up in the same way that ours was in fearless so that if there were any of my staff left or if i was left i could go across there and we could carry on the operation from intrepid um fortunately we didn't have to test it but that was the nearest we could do to save our skins the ship itself, uh, Intrepid and Fearless, they were both built at the request of the army at the end of the First World War, Second World War, sorry. Um, and to carry tanks, basically. So they hadn't got an operations room really for taking charge of an amphibious task group. It was minute. If Captain Larkin and I were in there together, uh, you could hardly move. It was antiquated. That didn't help. Communications, it wasn't expecting to take charge of an amphibious operation. So communications was poor. Accommodation. Uh, one of the staff officers uh, slept in the senior officer's bath because he wished to stay on board Fearless but there was no cabin for him. Officers were put into chief petty officers' cabins, petty officers, chief petty officers were put into petty officers' cabins, and that sort of stuff. There was a shortage of space. One of the most critical things, I think, about the whole operation was a misunderstanding, I would put it as, uh, the role of the logistics team in three commander brigade. Um, Colonel um, Ivor Helberg, was living with his staff in an LSL because there was no room on board Fearless. So while Julian and I could talk about the actual assault and he had enough of his main fighting staff there, I never managed to speak with Ivor Helberg, his, Julian's logistic chap, who was a Royal Corps transport officer at the time, now Royal Logistic Corps. So Army, not wholly um, trained up 
in naval thinking, etc., and what the problems were. He was abandoned, in a sense, at that stage of planning. And I know enough about it now to realise that the worst part was not the assault, but the then continual um, resupply and logistics to maintain three command brigades. The big mistake the army and the navy made was to allow five infantry brigade, the army support brigade, to come out with no logistics, no transport, no helicopters of their own, or anything like that. And so poor Oliver Helberg had to look after two brigades for which he was not manned and he was not equipped with stores and things. That part of the campaign frankly, became the worst part. It was a sh To me, it was a shambles. And it ended up with the poor Welsh guards being screwed up time and time again, not from a fault of their own, but from a fault that, in the first case, a para-officer had shanghaied the landing craft ready to take the whole of the Welsh guards ashore. They had disappeared. Nobody told me we sailed in fearless around uh, after the, having got the Scots guards down on the south coast and landed them safely. We thought it was going to be easy to follow fearless around who could nip round there in darkness and back home again into St. Carlos before uh, the Argentines could react. When we got there, there was, we could only have the two, two landing craft we had on board to take part of the Welsh Guards. So Welsh Guards naturally wanted to get down there and get involved. They actually behaved, I think, remarkably well because others stole landing craft and helicopters. And we had very, very few helicopters. I'll go, I don't want to go back into that too much, but <laughs> for instance, before we arrived down there, the SAS had managed to lose three helicopters, two in South Georgia and one which they overloaded in Hermes. And everybody said it's a, um, an, uh, um, what's it, uh, albatross. Um, but the, I don't think it hit an albatross at all. It just fell over the side because it had too many people on board. Um, this sort of thing was happening through ignorance. Um, Welsh Guards we, I was then begged by Jeremy Moore's Colonel AQ another Royal Corps of Transport officer more senior Colonel uh, because he, he's, he asked me if I would save the situation by getting the field ambulance uh, some rapiers a lot of ammunition, aviation fuel, and the remainders of the Scots Guards out to join up. But he admitted he'd not, he was not in touch with the uh, army brigades, fire brigades, headquarters in any great established communications. So we were going on what we had planned with the, with the army, we thought, and certainly with the brigade headquarters, or divisional headquarters. Of course, what happened then was that um, 
I thought Intrepid, uh, I thought, sorry, uh, St. Tristram was going to come back the night that Sir Galahad went out and I had tipped off the captain Sir Galahad that he may pass this LSL coming back in. So don't light him up or anything like that. Just, you know, say hello if you want, but don't give the game away. And we'd sent the same signal to Tristram. Whether he got it or not, I don't know. Tristram, quite understandably, was keeping silence. He didn't want to give away the fact that he was there because he was under the cliff. And divisional had the five, five brigades headquarters. I didn't know, and I don't think uh, Colonel Baxter, the divisional headquarters logistics officer, knew either that he had left, he'd moved away from his communications. We didn't know that the landing craft Foxtrot 4 had gone to rescue the divisional headquarters by bringing their communications down quickly and collected them. Foxtrot 4 was meant to be offloading Tristram and then it was meant to offload Sir Galahad. So what happened? Four Welsh guards lost about 50 people on board, not far short of 50 people on board the Galahad, from no fault of their own, in my view. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where the danger is. To my mind, if you're going to have an operation like that and going to maintain the ships for it, the capability of it, do not trust a, an unqualified, an untrained military staff to do it. So we basically badly need a second commanding brigade who do understand and do realise what the naval problems are. And talking to the amphibious course that I was on last week, I was talking to with Julian Thompson, explained to them the vital importance of logistics, because that is the side of the amphibious campaign which was left out. We never talked about it. When I was learning the business in the few months I had before, we actually did the operation. So we were, un we were unprepared in my staff largely. I think Julian Thompson would admit that he was unprepared for the, to realise what the effect would be he thought it was quite simple because you know, he had his team and it was all going to work out all right. Somehow, if you're going to retain an amphibious capability, you must retain the capability of support, which goes on after the landing. So the larger ships, the larger ships in that situation, I guess, you have... Uh, I'm just thinking from my Australian perspective here, you know, we've got the Canberra class. They do have, you know, they have large combined operations command centres and they have, they've got a space for that, I suppose. And you need a large ship to have a command centre plus all the accommodation, plus all the communications equipment um, to sustain an operation like that. I, I, I guess it's something that you can't do on, you know, I'm looking at uh, the... A Marine Corps proposal here for what they call you know, light amphibious warfare vessels. Um, 
uh, a smaller version of a traditional amphib, but much more able to hide in plain sight. Now, that seems like a terrible red flag to me. Um, much more affordable, much more numerous because of its cost. But they're talking about vessels here that are, um, and this was in the uh, USNI article that was shared with us, you know, vessels that are 200 to 400 feet long with 40 crew um, carrying 75 marines and 8,000 square feet of cargo space. So nowhere there is there mention of command and control, nowhere there is mention of sustaining operations. Um, but I guess they're also probably making that proposal in the context that they've already got a large number of um, large um, helicopter dock vessels as well, which can act as the um, uh, you know the mother duck to the to these um, floating hens, I suppose. Which is the point so, I make about the U.S. Marine Corps' plans quite regularly, because mm -hmm. they can afford to have the smaller ships because they have the bigger ships and all the supplies and logistics mm -hmm. behind them. Yeah. And actually, looking at that proposal which you just brought up, when I, I me and Michael had a phone call on Saturday to check the um, check Skype work because Michael doesn't normally does Zoom and these things, but we of course use Skype for this. So, and he actually was talking about I was talking about it with the small ships, and I went and looked at them, and I worked out those little ships. You could use them as a command ship, but it would only be the command ship. It would you would have to take everything out and just use it entirely at space for the command staff. So you'd end up with a little ship which has very limited survivability with all your staff on. And no communications. So that becomes a that becomes therefore a very much a very small single point of failure. And then you need another mm. another one which would have to have your logistics on, and then you need another ones which would have your deployed forces, and you end up needing about eight to ten of these ships to take the place of one LHD in terms of its role, or you could probably afford to have about eight of them and one LHD, with the LHD being the single point of supporting it. But then you can do that if you're the US. You can't do that if you're Britain or if you're Canada or if you're Australia, because we don't have the budgets to have all those ships and build the separate lines and have the separate training lines and all this stuff. No, I th yeah, I think there's. I think the thing is, there's, there's actually there's two elements of risk to to going with with smaller, less capable ships. One of which is, as, yeah, as as kind of the Falklands to a degree pointed out, is if you have smaller ships, so each ship is almost monotasked to do a certain thing. Then, if one of them gets hit and you lose it, you're in a lot of trouble because suddenly you've just lost them a key component it's like if you've got all your stores on one ship all your troops on another ship all your helicopters on another ship etc and command staff on another ship if one of them gets blown up you know no now no longer have that except whatever you can fish out of the water which and did happen in the four <coughs> with Atlantic the helicopter yeah <laughs> exactly now if and but there, there is a second element of the risk to it as well which is that if you have all these various ships doing monotasked roles in peacetime, as we were saying, with politicians looking for the short-term gain, it's very easy for them to try and cut the ones that don't look quite as important to them. I mean, we, we, we've seen some of the the store ships that the Royal Navy ha has, or the, the RFA, depending on which particular ship, but some of those have gone to the breakers a lot sooner than their whole lifetime says they should do, because they're, you've got relatively untrained politicians looking at going, ah, yes, but we still have Albion and Bulwark, so we can send a wave class 
tanker or something to the breakers because we'll still be able to land things and nobody has sort of grabbed them by the scruff of the neck and said, and how do you plan to keep everybody in fuel and food if you've sent all the store ships to the breakers' yards? You're not going to pile ration boxes on the flight deck and stack you a helicopter You probably will at top. this point, because that's what we yeah, have to and do. Then, and then you don't have helicopter support. And it's like, well, now, great, now what do we do? So, yeah, you, you kind of, there's got to be a minimum floor um, in displacement that allows you to have it a design that can carry troops, support a command staff, have a, a, a certain element of stores and logistics aboard. <clears throat> because, well, if you're looking at small-scale operations, it's a self-contained attack unit, which is good. And if you're looking at larger operations, if you have multiple of them, it then means if if, if you do somehow manage to end up losing one of them, you have weakened your force, but you haven't fatally compromised your force and 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 this is i think this is the sort of a tangential point but uh, the other thing with a lot of politicians and sort of future techno all technology type thinking as well is people assume that it's all or nothing you're either going to lose your entire fleet or task force or everything's going to be 100% intact and that's not how any war has ever worked you always lose something so you've mm-hmm. got to make sure that you've got the redundancy built in and believe it or not, enemies are quite good at working out what's the single point of failure they need to target. Mm. They do to put a lot of effort into it. You can't presume your enemy's going to be dumb. No. <laughs> yeah. And and this and this is the thing is if you've got whatever we want to call it ourselves com- combined amphibious large ship, then although it's annoying, let's say. Uh, to replace Albion and Bulwark and the, the the dearly departed and lamented ocean, if Britain was to build three or four of these, well, a you get cost savings because building a, a class batch, you know, having to maintain multiple different types of ship. You could even build five or six if there's capabilities to take over from some of the fast store ships, and then you've got a fairly powerful group. It can do an awful lot of things all over the place, and in peacetime, it's quite useful as well because they can go around doing all sorts of useful self-contained missions. But then if absolute worst comes to worst and either politicians or enemy missiles take out one or two, um, you still have a core force that can do something. It can't do quite as much as it could when it had five or six ships, but you can still conduct an operation. Whereas if you you end up subdividing everything into lots of tiny little bits, it's very easy for somebody to just knock off one bit and cripple a much, much larger operation. I mean, this is this is why, um, if we go go off with the U.S. Navy for a second, this is why the overall size and displacement of their supercarriers hasn't really gone up that much since CVN sixty five Enterprise, because you still need multiple hulls, and the carriers there's not so many of them nowadays, and they are still to a certain degree a single point of failure, but if somehow you manage to take out one of the American carriers, there's eight or nine others that can come in to, to replace it or might already be there. Whereas if you, if you just kept escalating when it right, we know we're just going to put everything into one massive 300,000 ton mobile Island. It's like, okay, well, great. Someone put six torpedoes into the side of it. Now what you have no air cover. Um, but equ- equally, if you go completely off the deep end the other way and just have, Oh, we'll, we'll have like two, three squadron light carriers all over the place. Uh, you, you face sort of the opposite end problem, as we said, of you, 
you end up having to monotask. So you'd have this carrier has our fighters, this carrier has our bombers, this carrier has our helicopters, this carrier has our transport and logistics. And then, yeah, you've got four hulls, put one torpedo into one of them and that's it. Mission scrubbed, even if you have the other three. Still afloat. And this is the point with the amphibious ships, because I look at the bay class and go, yes, you could use that as a model as a future, or you could go with a small LHD. You know, that's the sort of... And I, I do like the idea of the small LHD because I returned to the lovely Australian report, which had this chapter three, which said, you need about roughly six spots to be able to launch a company in an airlift. You need six spots because you need at least six multiples of six helicopters going off. If you use bigger helicopters, well, the trouble is if you're using bigger helicopters, you're going to want to escort, escort them because they have more point of failure. If you're using smaller aircraft, smaller helicopters, they can take less troops. So you need more of them. Either way, you're going to need roughly six spots to launch this aircraft. And you might need as many as 12 aircraft to actually get the company there. That means you're going to need a freaking large flight deck. I think the Queen Elizabeth classes are just a, a, a bit bigger than six spots. It's not that much bigger in many ways. I, this is the point when they go on about small ships. You know, you have to think through the small ships. Yes, building a smaller ship, if you can get more of them, that is good. That is survival. Uh, are they actually going to be of a useful size? Are you building smaller just for the sake of building smaller? Just a quick question for Mr. Clapp. Um you would have been involved in the design and pro process of the um, Ocean and Albion's, I would imagine, from your experience? No. So you, were, <laughs> no, you, you didn't have any input? Because I was, I was just wondering <laughs> how, how those lessons that uh, you learnt in such, you know, well, such a direct I, and hard I've way been, were, were applied. I've been on board and I was extremely impressed at what the result was. And I don't know that I would have wanted to change a great deal. Um, no, I think they're very good ships. Um, they, from certainly from the command and control point of view, they are a leap ahead. And um, what what's not been discussed is the numbers of troops. I was lumbered with a Canberra. I was frightened <laughs> sick about the Canberra. Yeah. I had nothing to put them into. I wanted small cross-channel ferries. Uh, which we then got in the form of Northern and things uh, later on, but even they were quite large. Um, there is a lot to be said for spreading the load, but you've got to be careful. You're not spreading your command and control. <laughs> that needs to be staying in one place. Okay, have a backup staff in another ship in case you get some. Um, if you, if you can, if you can afford it and, and can do the setup. It just depends on the scale of the operation, really. The um, Falklands, I think we're extremely lucky not to lose the Canberra. Uh, it could have been an absolute disaster. Um, what astonished me was I had a call on the 21st, the day we went in, uh, towards the later part of the day, from the commander-in-chief, saying, you know, he was uh, very pleased to hear how it had gone, uh, but Margaret Thatcher was very worried about the Canberra. And I thought, well, <laughs> the hell, you should be worried because you're the one that sent her down. I didn't have any choice over it. Um, and so, you know, I had to send Canberra out that night 
and she still had stores which Julian Thompson would have liked to have been landed, but they had been stowed badly. So because she was a, a liner, mm. um, somebody had stowed them with dockyard crane and you couldn't lift them out by helicopter because you were you were flying in amongst all their radio triatic stays. Um, and you would have you know got your rotor completely knotted up, literally. Um, so that all had to be moved by hand. So there are all sorts of little aspects to it. And what we needed was more relatively small store ships and helicopter carriers and that sort of thing, not on the command side. It gets, it's a very difficult balance to know how to make it, but you do need to spread it a bit. I suppose it it shows that, apart from anything else, you need them to be military vessels, because yeah. a military vessel will have been equipped to be able to unload those supplies. And also, if the worst had come to the worst, if Canberra had been hit, at the end of the day, as you said, it's a liner. It's not built to take bombs and rockets and missiles, so it probably would have gone up like a torch with um, the... With, Obviously, you don't want to get those kind of hits in, but if it's a military-built vessel to military standards with a fully Navy crew aboard, if it does take a hit, then you've at least got a fighting chance of containing that and keeping your casualty levels down, as opposed to yeah, a, a liner that's just going to go up like the blue blue touch paper. And it's not just that, because if the Canberra got hit, the Americans would then have to be dealing with the Argent with the Australian invasion of Argentina, seeking seeking revenge, seeking mm. something named after their capital. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. Jim, yeah, I we'd sold. Going, it would I think, never I think happen. We, never happen. We I think we'd sold Melbourne honest. by that point, hadn't we? <laughs> <laughs> totally right. Um, it's um, it's a very difficult thing. I, the other aspect from the Royal Naval's point of view is that after the campaign, I know that the uh, RFA senior chap down in the Falklands did recommend that they should no longer become the Royal Fleet. They should be part of the Royal Navy, which would allow them to be equipped permanently with weapon systems and things like that. They weren't built to to accept uh, damage. Um, they didn't have the damage control doors and uh, being able to seal the ship up that we had and so on. And this is unfair to them because I think they bloody well should be. And they need to be drawn in more to the Royal Navy. Okay, they were bloody brave and their seamanship and stuff is excellent. Their merchant Navy side of it. But they... They weren't, it wasn't fair on them to, to have to use them like that. Mm -hmm. The NSLs we discovered on the way down had these positions for a Bofors, for two Bofors up near the bar. And that was extraordinary because suddenly they got flown out to Ascension and we were sitting there for three weeks and had a chance to fit them. We fitted one, which actually turned out to be the one for Sir Galahad, uh, she only had one. Um, we fitted one in the elk, but that we had to had to cut great chunks off the elk so that it could be fitted and uh, had an arcs of fire all right. Um, somewhere along the line, 
we do need to have ships with some defensive capability built in um, in support. And if it means their Royal Navy only, so be it. Um, they can still be manned by Royal Fleet Auxiliary people and be quite so highly qualified, but they do need that level of radio uh, communications and things to support them. So they're part of the weapon system of the fleet. And in, in terms of uh, utility, general utility as well, I mean, obviously we're focusing quite specifically on amphibious task group operations, but um, one of the other things I think I think we've discussed on this podcast a few episodes back was also what the Navy does in peacetime, because let's face it, the Navy generally spends most of its time at peace. Um, the war, war is for peace as far as the Navy yes. is concerned. Yeah, it's, it's, un, it's unfortunately the age of sail where you could just spend about 10 years cruising the seas and picking up prizes every few weeks as months uh, passed by. And to be honest, if we had someone like with a, a capture rate of Pell, you would probably have denuded the seas in the first few months of the, anyway. Um, but it, <laughs> but uh, that aside. Look, he had lots and lots of things to buy. He needed the prize money. <laughs> yeah. It, it's perfectly fine. But, but, um, yeah, or the more serious point, it's like in peacetime, what does the what does the Royal Navy do? Obviously, it trains, but it also does a lot of relief efforts, um, both internationally and within the various British overseas territories. Like when um, Montserrat, mm. when that volcano went up, the only reason that that evacuation was able to be done with minimal minimal to no loss of life and in the timely manner that it was done was because the Royal Navy was able to go out there with ships that had the capability to help. And it's, it's as, as Michael was saying, there's an obligation to the men in times of war, but there's also an, op, an obligation to UK citizens generally in times of peace yeah. to be able to, to help and support them. And as long as we're going to have these overseas territories that may be subject to all sorts of environmental disasters... And we can also help out other places as well, because hurricanes going through the Caribbean don't really discriminate based on whose flag is flying. If you have a very, very small fleet, let's say at the moment we've got Albion and Bulwark, there's a limited amount you can do. If you consolidate a lot of the sort of the RFA stuff and the Canberra type situation, oh, we'll just grab a civilian ship. If we get rid of that concept and consolidate instead onto a larger fleet of common common hull type ships that are able to do this kind of multiple logistics support troop transport etc flight operations then the royal navy actually has a fantastic amount of peacetime capability to go out and do these things so if you have another massive category 5 hurricane tears through the caribbean there might be say two british overseas possessions hit you can send a ship to each of those and you can send another couple of ships to set other nearby islands to help out there. And although it's all peacetime, it actually has an effect on wartime capabilities because one, it's good training at the end of the day. Um, and two, it's soft power. If you keep helping people when things go horribly wrong, they're much less likely to turn around and try and shoot at you. Yeah. Um, and they're also likely to help you when things go wrong for you. I exactly. You know, if we consider the lesson of South America in World War Two, there were large German communities. They were very, they were very pro-German. None of those countries, not even Argentina, which was very, very pro-German in some of its political sentiments, 
mm. even considered declaring war on the side of Germans or assisting them, in, you know, because the British had been the ones who had been turning up for decades. Every time there's a disaster, a Royal Navy cruiser or a couple of cruisers would turn up. The sailors would help out. They'd turn up. They'd be useful. They were always there as a presence. So they'd be there for the big occasions, parties. They'd turn up. They'd turn up, you know, for the disasters. And so when war came, OK, yes, we have a large group, very pro-German, da da da, da But we are the the British are our friends. The Germans might be the nice people who we love, but the British are our friends and we have our economic interests as well. But the British are also our friends. And it, the two sort of work together and sort of counterbalance. And you've got that classic case at Montevideo when the Graf Bay is trying to get assistance. And honestly, the Uruguayans are almost having none of it. It's getting no. So you've got thousands, tens of thousands of volunteers turning up to the British embassy, volunteering, not just for the British embassy to help them, but also quite a lot of them volunteered to join the British armed forces in World War Two. And I think it's about I'm not quite sure the figures, but I think several hundred actually end up making the journey and joining British. And you end up with a Uruguayan, large Uruguayan contingent in Britain because they saw the war had come to them and they went, Britain is fighting this war. This is what they're fighting. Britain's our friend. And plus that was probably a quite a healthy dose of we're young male and we want adventure going on as well. Um, and they go and join the British forces. This is, you know, something. And, yeah. And it can, and it can even come down to something as, as simple as when you go back to wartime, these kind of peacetime activities, which require the capability to actually execute, mm. That can also come back in very, even in very simple but very vital ways in times of war. Because if we take the Falklands scenario, for example, if Britain, if we if, if say take a, a 2021 for some bizarre reason, Argentina decides to invade the Falklands again, uh, assuming that they somehow make it past the Death Star that is RF Mount Pleasant, um, <laughs> that um, if the Royal Navy has kind of been neglecting saying hi and being friendly and helping out the various South American countries, then if a ship goes goes down to try and help retake the Falklands and takes a hit, those countries are not under any real obligation to help that ship. If the ship can limp to, I don't know, uh, Buenos Aires, I don't know, Buenos Aires is an Argentine, that would be a bad idea. <laughs> Sao Paulo. Um, yeah, yeah if, they can, if a ship can limp to Sao Paulo then it might just about make it. It might, the crew might survive. It's all but lots of mites, but at best, it's probably going to end up interned. Nothing's going to happen to it at that point. If you've made friends with everybody, then not only might the Brazilian Navy come out and give you a tow, which vastly increases the chances of you getting to Sao Paulo in the first place. And also as doesn't... As a humanitarian help. Yeah, as a humanitarian help, because they actually feel like helping you. That also, not only does that increase the potential survival rate of your damaged ship, it also means your other combat ships that are down there aren't having to be retasked, which increases the survivability of the remaining vessels. And they're not likely to inter you. They might actually even help patch you up. And exactly, yeah, whether, whether or not you, exactly how far they're willing to push neutrality, they might patch you up enough to get back into action, or they might patch you up enough that you can get back to the UK and then get patched up and get back into action, depending on how long the whole thing lasts. But all of that, by the end of the conflict, that could be the difference between not only victory and defeat, but it could also be the difference 
in more mundane terms between are we coming out of this down one or two holes or are we coming down uh, out of this down three or four holes or more because of what we've done in peacetime relations so it's a it's a very long tree that you sort of follow up but it all comes back to this root thing of we you have to have the right capabilities because nobody goes into a war with a blank slate and it's why what it's why I worry whenever people start going, oh, what we should do is we should have a UK aid ship or UK hospital ship or this, that, which isn't part of the Navy. Da, 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 da. And I sit there and go, that's great. So you get an aid ship. So therefore, the Navy doesn't have a, a, someone is going to use that as a reason to cut the money off the Navy. So mm. the Navy don't have the reason to turn up there because they're not going to keep the capabilities if they're not seeing them being no. used in peacetime because they're and- going to think we don't need them. And. Actually, that you're losing a whole lot of skills from Navy. Actually, it would be a good thing if you did have a UK aid ship, if you did have a hospital ship going around, you would definitely want to make that Royal Fleet Auxiliary. You would definitely want that to be part of the Navy because that helps the Navy get involved and keep them going. And it also helps the Navy have reason for their doctors to go out there and deploy and giving the Navy medical staff and probably it would be a combined forces medical staff would go out. It gives them experience because, again, the sort of scenarios you're going to be dealing if you're a naval force, a naval hospital ship in wartime are not going to be the day to day run of the mill medical care. They are going to be large scale trauma. They are going to be devastating sites. And in the nicest way, exercises can only show you so much. And I, so it sounds so terrible to say this, and I know someone's probably going to damn me on Twitter for saying this, but actually there is a, almost an advantage of doing disaster relief in this circumstance when you turn up, because it does, to an extent, train your forces a bit in dealing with that sort of trauma. Mm. It's not nice. It's not something you want to do. You prefer to never have to have it. But when it does happen, it's kind of like the Bonhomme Richard and the U.S. Navy have been sending sailors around it to see what a burned out ship is like, to understand the greater experience about what fighting fires on a ship is like. It's something you never want to happen. Mm. But when it does happen, you want to help out, but you can also learn from it. And that's the advantage if you have those ships. And also, there's a... the, the advantage, the, the situation, I suppose, is uh, very much evident from Australia's recent experiences with its horrific fires. Um, we used the uh, an ex-Royal Fleet Auxiliary vessel, uh, which now HMAS Chores, and we used one of our Canberra-class LHDs um, for evacuation of um, people trapped on uh, coastal towns where they... The mountains around them were, were going up in flames. So we had, it's a situation where, or very, one of those very rare situations where the Navy actually gets to be seen and it gets to interact with the community in a way that um, it, it normally can't. Often, you, you'll often see Army, you'll often see Air Force. Air Force will turn up at um, you know, all of the major events with their flyovers and their you know, their, their, their um, aerobatics teams, the army will park their tank in a, uh, in a park to, to, to show off. It's not so easy for, the, for a Navy to, to do that. But I, I, can, I can say that Australia's experience with the, um, these, this disaster was to see these ships rapidly mobilised, rapidly deployed, sending out their helicopters or beaching themselves in order to pick up people off of the shore. And that ability was roundly applauded 
and the, the speed and the efficiency in which those ships did that. And, you know, we're talking about ships going into really thick, heavy smoke in order to enter a bay, in order to get to a town, and in order to provide that support. So I, I imagine it would also have tested every level of that these amphibious ships' command and control, um, logistics specifically as well, as you were saying, the, the logistics is what everyone forgets. But, you know, at, at the drop of a hat, this military skill was put into effect in order to mobilise um, ambulances, mobilise uh, bulldozers, military bulldozers, heavy lifting equipment to get them to these towns to help fight the fires and to help evacuate these people and help prepare the, the facilities to evacuate the people. Um, to get the helicopters on the ship, to get the support crews on the ship, all in the space of you know a couple of days' notice, and you know th as you say, I, I imagine it's the sort of training that you would have loved to have had um, before the Falklands mm -hmm. to have actually gone through that process to realise that, hang on, Fearless's command and control centre just doesn't work. Oh, yeah, and, and nobody's <laughs> mentioned the Royal Yacht. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll try to avoid that one. <laughs> that that was supposed to be the commander control facilities, wasn't it? The Royal Yacht. Hmm? Sorry. The Royal Yacht was supposed to be your commander control facilities. No, not not as commander control facility, but it was a, as a hearts and minds before the campaign, and it was brought down later because nobody wanted that to be hammered um, as a sort of hospital ship because it had that facility. Oh, yeah, and I, I think the thing is, this this comes down to as as Jamie's uh, covered to a fair degree. Yeah. When when you're doing um, these kind of relief efforts, it's also about the what I would say the effectiveness, the security, um, and the efficiency of things. Because if you're doing, I mean, okay, if you're doing sort of self-administered aid, like with the Australian wildfires. You don't have to worry about the security quite as much, but if you're going to a third world country or similar, well, we know law and order breaks down in times of natural disaster quite often. And we're the best one in the world. If you've got a entirely civilian aid ship and it pulls up, and some local warlord in a in a um, one of those invincible Toyota trucks with a machine gun strapped on the back rolls up to the dock and says right, you're going to go and help these people in this area and these people in this area because they obey me and you're not going to help those people in those at that area. And if you do, I'm going to shoot you. What are they going to do? They have to. They either have to not help or they have to get into extensive negotiations, which probably ends up, bri ends up bribing him and wasting resources, or they do what he says. If you show up with a Navy ship and somebody shows up with that, then they just point 60 machine guns back at him and say, excuse me, <laughs> um, <laughs> shove off <laughs> no no one no one's gonna mess with an uh, with a white ensign flying lhd they very much will mess with something that just just sort of says ss comfort and hope um in in that scenario but also, usually has a group of royal marines aboard who will be happily go out and explain to him exactly why their toyota now belongs to them yes yeah <laughs> and uh, and the other thing is that if you're um if in in terms of the actual effectiveness of the operation i've i've been out and, and done disaster relief and with, to be perfectly frank, actually, not even with the best one in the world, because I really don't like some of these. Some of these international aid organisations, they couldn't organise a party in a brewery. 
to be frank, they waste such a fantastically That's stupid and nice way of putting what is the traditional phrase. Yes. I think we can all say the traditional phrase yeah. on this one. But there's like they waste so many resources sitting around, ticking boxes, filling out insurance papers, making sure they've got the PR and the news media and all that looks good. I've literally, I've literally seen some of the bigger aid organisations throw fifty people at something. They work on it for half an hour while the media crew films them all, and the minute the, the TV crew drives off, they all disappear, <laughs> and they and they leave a bunch of materials lying around. Um, a half-completed shelter or house, um, and usually, weirdly enough, also abandoned a bunch of power tools that don't work because they've driven off with a generator truck. It's like, well done, guys. I'm, I'm, I'm sure the, the the million quid it cost you to set up that public stunt has helped absolutely nobody whatsoever. Um, well, it's raised them probably a few million. Yeah, it, it's made them money, but it, it's like that's not the point. You're supposed to be helping people. It's like smaller, smaller aid organisations who don't worry about um, the PR tend to actually do an, a, an actual proper job. But the only other people who actually have any real effect on what's going on is the military, because the military don't care about press opportunities. Um, and <clears throat> the, Well, they do. The press well, officer turns up and tries to organise something and then yes. goes away crying after 20 minutes because they're not doing it. But they actually get things done. And it's not, and it's, it's not just the... the, the, the general effectiveness of actually getting stuff done because they have a, this isn't, they have a mission they will fulfill the mission and with most of them they'll keep fulfilling the mission until you tell them to stop fulfilling the mission um, but also there's a much clearer chain of command and control and a much I wouldn't say casual but a much more realistic approach to risk because again if you if you um, take a, a position like, like, say, the Australian wildfires, but let's say they were happening in another country and the Royal Navy was going to help. If you have a civilian ship and they show up off the harbour and there's a massive pool of smoke over the harbour from who knows what's caught fire, a civilian ship is going to sit there and go, ah, do our risk assessments cover this? How many people are we going to have, have potentially with respiratory issues? Um, can, can Will the crew actually go in regardless of that? Can we Can we poll them? Can we... Do we have the necessary protective equipment to deal with this? Maybe, maybe not. And all during that time, people are suffering, people are dying. A Navy ship that shows up and sees that is going to go, well, it's fortunate we have a, a self-contained ventilation system and we have all our uh, oxygen systems for damage control and our gas masks and all this other useful military equipment. And also, we don't particularly care about smoke because we're the Navy. It's like our job is to be shot at by people. <laughs> a little bit of smoke is not going to scare us that much. And they'll just they probably won't even break stride. They'll just sail straight in and get stuck in. And and then when they do get stuck in again. In fact, they're probably half of them are going, we get to break out the really cool equipment. Exactly. That was the we're point. Now I was Darth gonna... Vader. <laughs> that was the point I was going to come up to next is the fact that. A civilian ship at best is going to have maybe some commercial, maybe some commercial building plant that somebody's donated or something like that. A, a navy ship when it shows up, it's like, yeah, we we have we we borrowed this en Royal Engineer converted tank engineering vehicle from somewhere, and honestly, don't 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 tell First Armoured Corps we have it. Um, but they'll just quite happily show up, and there's various scenarios where yeah, a, a commercial bit of plant can get flooded it can get overheated it can get tires punctured etc 
if you have a 60 ton armored recovery vehicle with a massive dozer blade on the on the front nothing short of a fallen skyscraper is going to stop it and if there is a fallen skyscraper they'll just blow it up and get, get go through anyway because they're the military and they can do that so there's all sorts of advantages to that um in in actually doing something useful on top of the training and the goodwill and the strategic benefits to it all so it's re it's really a win-win but again it all loops back to do we have the right ships to do it and the right uh, control yes which um, well that's the other thing is the command a good exercise for it yeah it, that's the other thing is the command and control system hmm. if you if you've got half a dozen different civilian agencies scrambling to try and respond to a disaster who on earth's in charge is it the local government? Is it the government the ship's from? Is it the captain of that ship? Who knows? When the Navy shows up, it's like, who's the most senior officer? I am. Right, you're in charge. Let's get on with it. Yeah. I think at some point we're going to have to get um, Chris Stockdale on this, on bilge pumps, because Chris Stockdale Garber, he's the president of the Simsec UK, and his entire PhD thesis is on how navies respond to disaster <clears throat> relief. And it includes one thing I'm not sure he's going to put in there, where a naval officer actually at one point basically told the red cross where to bog off mm. because they were doing all the they were doing all the aid stuff etc and they said you can't go in it's too risky da, 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 da. and he went mm. what the us navy we're going in get out of our way yeah yeah and and as i said it's like when you get translate that all back into wartime experience if you've got a crew who've dealt with yeah, we, we sailed up to an island that's been hit by a Category 5 hurricane after which the power station exploded and everything was on fire and there were random mobs looting everything. If you put them up in San Carlos water a year after that, they'd be like, this is really quiet. <laughs> this is easy. I mean, yeah, there's the occasional angry Argentine, but <laughs> who cares? This is fun. <laughs> oh. So getting back to the future of amphibs, amphibious warfare, I guess, is it fair to say that you know, it's, it's a constant change of balance between defender and attacker, whether it's the age of castles or whether it's the age of hypersonic missiles? Um, is it fair to say that defender has an advantage at the moment under the area defence um, you know, doctrine, I suppose? It's, it seems to have um, evolved out of... China and Russia, and you know, I, I, my my interpretation of the Marine Corps, U.S. Marine Corps' um, counteraction or you know attempt to counteract that is to create their own mobile area denial units to establish. Um, it, it, I, it, I guess it comes back to what you were saying before about choosing your terrain first and choosing your uh, how you how and where you go in. It appears to me that they, their argument is to send in a small force to create that uh, uh, area bubble of their own and then move in to that protected bubble, the larger vessels and the larger, the, the, the heavier the equipment. Is, is, that a, is that a fair assessment of where things seem to be headed at the moment, at least in the Pacific? Mr. I don't know where we're going at the moment. Oh, I think uh, I think Jamie has basically dropped us into topic three, and so what oh, okay. I'll do is I'll announce topic three uh, because that was a quite a good question, and then I'll put my point to Jamie in that one um, because topic three, which Jamie has led us into beautifully, 
is with China now building aircraft carriers, the Type 75 LHD and the, uh, proposing the Type 76 LHD, which apparently combines it, it combines LHD with email for our catabar operation. What do you feel the key indicators are for the future? What should Western navies, any navies, be paying attention? And what are the mental traps we risk falling into, such as perhaps the eerily similar sound of Japan copied our stuff to China copied our stuff that we're now hearing? And, you know, sort of what Western navies and US Marine Corps need to do to adapt. I have to say, I've been looking at it, and as you know, I keep, I do get back to this, the US Marine Corps is making a lot of big fuss about their literal um their missile strike regiments and these things but i noticed they're also building a lot of eight by eight apcs which are going to be very very careful okay capable of self-deploying they have got even with the loss of bomber richard a large number of already built under construction and already in service large ships for doing large operations should they need to or acting as the nodes for amphibious operations with smaller ships going out and I think what they are actually looking at rebuilding, to my mind, is the U.S. Navy's approach to um, amphibious operations, U.S. Marine Corps amphibious operations in the middle part of World War II, where you have the smaller ships for doing raiding and to combine together for a bigger operation and for deploying about. But you also had the big ships back. They know the thing is, the idea is that if you're in a scenario where you end up in a major war where you're going to need to do the really big D-Day or Okinawa-style operation, you're going to probably have time to build up to it. It's not going to be overnight requirement, the odds are. But to do the myriad of small operations, if you consider what the British were doing in Norway and all those things, you need a lot of smaller ships. You know, one of the interesting things about some of the most forgotten amphibious warfare ships in the Royal Navy and British history from World War Two were the landing ship mediums. Um, and they were these smaller, I think they're called landing ship mediums. They're the, some of the first conversions. And they could carry an LCM, which is a landing craft mechanism, which was long range. They were just big enough to carry that, some of those longer range landing craft, which were also faster than the landing craft assault. And so they were used for Norway operations because when you're going up and down fjords, they make a lot of sense. And they make a lot of sense. So the, combined, uh, the first commando operations, which I did a whole section about in my book, because they have the tribal class destroyers and they link them with these ships to go in because the tribal class is small enough to go in the fjord and give them the firepower and these ships are large enough to put them in. But the point is, that's for a distributed operation. The moment you get into an operation where you need to land a brigade-sized force or something like that, you want something bigger. And I, I think that's what the U.S. Marine Corps is trying to balance, in my mind. But I'll leave, you know, what do you guys think? And Michael, especially, what do you think? Because you're far more experienced than me. Me as an academic who's been reading through it all. <laughs> I, I'm not sure what I think, really, because I, I think I totally agree with what's been said so far is that uh, it's very difficult to get the balance. Um, you know, you the problem with amphibious operations is that you could have a multitude of different situations. How do you land on some island or place with hasn't got a beach? Does the beach have clear ground behind it? Can you drive off it or you just sit there looking at the cliffs all around you? All this sort of thing. Um, it's a it's a huge balance as to 
what sort of helicopter you've got. Why hasn't the Navy got uh, Chinooks of its own so that we can shift heavy equipment from the carriers or from an El um, um, Albion and Bulwark? Uh, that sort of argument comes in. Um, it's so much better, in my experience, to rely on one service and the Royal Marines are part of the naval service to carry out an operation than it is to suddenly say, well, we've got all these facilities elsewhere, you know, we'll use them and bring them in because they all train under a different approach and different system and different way of life. Um, I think the limitation is if you are going to use multiple services, they need to practice together quite a lot. They need to work together a lot because I think the problem comes not necessarily from the multiple services. It's when they're suddenly going, right, oh, we're suddenly going to use the Chinooks on that. And uh, you're suddenly going, you've never operated off a ship before. You've never had to do anything. And this is one of the interesting things with the Falklands. It, the way it happens is basically the Chinooks are parachuted into an amphibious operation put on Atlantic conveyor, only one of them gets down there because of the scenario that happens. And you sit there and go, there, I'm not surprised at the problems. It's probably the first time anyone has thought about these things, let alone tried to do them with a Chinook because it's prone to go through operations. <clears throat> if you're going to do these things, you need to practice them regularly. And this is another reason why I worry about Ocean not having been replaced and i worry about the idea of get, uh, replacing ambien bulwark with smaller ships because to my mind that's going to put more pressure on the queen elizabeth class in the uk case in in australia they've managed to avoid this by very sensibly limiting canberra and uh, the canberra class to actually just amphibious operations by their design so making it very expensive to put f-35b's on them but in the case of the uh, britain for the queen elizabeth class they are designed to operate strike carriers as your air defense. The moment you're in a scenario like, not just like the Falklands, but any scenario if you're in the South China Sea or anything like that against a near-peer or peer power, you're going to want to load those ships up to bear with every single fighter you can get your hands on. In fact, that's not even a stupid response. That's the most logical, sensible response. And that means suddenly, if you are taking helicopters or aircraft, they're going to have to be operating from something else. The odds are you are not going to have your second carrier immediately available on time, especially if you're only operating two. So you're going to be in trouble. You're going to need these things. And if you've suddenly got if you're bringing in different services and they have in their own previous experiences been operating, let's say, from one of your ships and suddenly you've got them operating from a different ship. The experience of operating from a bay class with no hangar or an RFA, which might have a hangar, but might not have the space to take a Chinook, is going to be a world different from operating from a Queen Elizabeth-class aircraft carrier. It's going to be a world different from operating from a shore base, which you normal air base you do. You need to start practicing these things because it's what's going to happen. In the limited, very limited war scenario, you might well have Queen Elizabeth have enough space that, oh, she only needs a couple of handfuls of F-35 so we can put Chinooks, we can put everything on her, we can use the Fram Fibs. Oh, that's lovely. That's perfect. But I don't think that scenario is going to turn up that often outside of exercises. I think the scenario is going to turn up more often that, especially if you're looking at the tea leaves and going, eh, the world's not looking as safe as it used to and definitely not as some of the predictions for the last 20 years have gone and going, right, and she's going to end up loaded to bear with fighters. She's going to end up loaded to bear with airborne early warning with anti-submarine warfare. 
where are those Chinooks going to be operating from? Where are those aircraft? We need to start thinking about that. And in the US case, they've gone to the great thing of developing the CH 53C stallion. And what people haven't sort of realized, but I was, when I was looking at them, was thinking, was that is also part of the US Marine Corps thinking about this distributed warfare capability and moving around, because that is very much a single rotor aircraft, which actually is easier to maintain in many ways than a Chinook. So it can go to the smaller ships and can operate. And it's going to be operated from all of them. It's part of their thing. And they've got the V-22 Osprey, which I would prefer Britain not to get in because I think there's better ones on development. And frankly, I don't see the point in buying into a development system, which is now starting to run, uh, run down. Um, but they've got that to move more people in. And again, over longer distances quicker. If you, you know, we have a lot of trouble in that. I see people trying to ape, uh, copy the Americans and they're, what they're trying to do and not thinking, hang on, does this necessarily fit for what we can do with the capabilities we're going to bring to the table? And it's with the idea of getting rid of sort of Albion and Bulwark. Or uh, I, I found it interesting, as I said, when I was reading the Australian papers, they looked exactly very things very similar to literal strike ships and ended up with the camera class LHDs. They start off looking at one thing and they end up with once they look through and go through the logistics, the everything they need to do, they end up with the camera class. I think I think the other thing is you've got to look at when you even if you, even if you're going to cross train your services, you've also got to look at the primacy of services in 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 any given operation, not just from the immediate command perspective, but from the the overall strategic perspective. Because especially for the Royal Navy, um, I mean, there's Admiral Fisher's I think it's Admiral Fisher's famous quote: "The army the army is a projectile to be fired from the gun of the Royal Navy." That's been how the armed forces were, have worked for the vast majority of the time that the Royal Navy and the army have existed. The army and now with the Royal Air Force as well have come up in the world a little bit to be theoretically co-equal services because of, again, this emphasis on Europe, um, both in World War One, World War Two, and then in the Cold War, where well, you, you can't really fight a land war on Europe, in Europe with ships. So the strategic interest of Britain is served by the Navy, but the immediate tactical interest of Britain is, is better served by the Army and Air Force. But if we're going to now, the view is shifting more outwards again to a maritime environment, people have to realise and acknowledge that, OK, we, we now have three armed services instead of two. But if you look back at, the 19th century it was very much a case of there is a crisis there is a conflict there is xyz the navy will bring the army to the place where they're needed and the navy will land the army and then if needed the navy will then continue to further support the army like in the in the second Boer war where one of the powerful class cruisers just dismounted half of its main battery and trundled up to relieve kimberley because the army didn't have anything bigger than a pop gun um and naval artillery tends to make a mess of people who aren't expecting it um, <laughs> uh, so but it, we, it, there's got to be an acknowledgement that that mindset's going to have to set in place that there are plenty of obviously good career officers in the army and we don't want to diminish them but at the end of the day the Royal Navy is not a, a taxi service. 
the Royal Navy is its own armed service. Amphibious landings are a naval matter. And therefore, the Royal Navy both has to have, I think, first call on if, if, if there's going to be funding issues, the Royal Navy needs first call on things because that's how you get things from A to B. That's how you fight when you get there. And that's how you defend your position when you get there. Then landing the troops comes after that. So that's, so that's your starting, your basic starting block. Um, and when it comes to planning, again, um, the Navy has to be the ones who are planning it because, as, as we were saying in the beginning of the podcast with uh, exercises, it's all very well for the Army to go, this is a wonderful bay to land in. And then if you show up and you find there's six foot of water, <laughs> you're not getting very far. Uh, these are the kind of things that Navy personnel generally are slightly better at finding out. Um, quite what the Air Force is going to be doing in all this, I'm not entirely sure. I suppose we can we can bring them along on the carriers. Um, but again, kind of the, the can't, can't, was, can't you have to reactivate some of those Vulcans? Uh, we've got <laughs> one, uh, but the, the, I mean, people will definitely not see it coming. <laughs> <laughs> one of the aspects, sorry, if I could chip in. Yeah, um, yeah. One of the aspects we haven't discussed is the support for the Chinooks or something like that. We've there is a completely different, or there was, a very different um, approach to maintenance by the RAF and the Fleet Air Arm. Fleet Air Arm had developed its maintenance based on seagoing operations and things, and of course the RAF don't need to concern that. So this is another argument which is, is to my mind, important along the lines that um, you, Alex, have been suggesting. Um, the big problem it, with the commander helicopter It sounds like a sort of inter-service squabble argument. It isn't. It's, it's just a fact that it's a different approach. Everything in a carrier is about 10 feet away from you. You know, the, your ammunition is uh, probably about 20 feet below you. Um, your fuel is there. Everything is there. On an airfield... It's all spread around, quite rightly, for, for protection and losing it. Um, this creates a completely different approach to how you maintain and look after your aircraft. I think in the Falk I don't know how it worked in the Falklands in Hermes with her with the um, GR3 Harriers coming out, but I don't think they were terribly happy in the reaction they got. And... Um, I would love to actually know more about it as to a genuine look at it from the point of view of their support. One of the things with the combined helicopter force that has happened is it, this was an interesting comment I had a few years ago when I was doing a a lot of working with various parts of it and various parts of the junglies was I was having a frank discussion with actually it was a Royal Air Force engineering officer and a Royal Navy engineering officer and the Royal Air Force engineering officer said, we never realized quite how much the Royal Navy over-maintained stuff. And they end up, sort of, he said, and you realize it's because of salt water, it's because of where they're operating. So we've had to bring our stuff up to the level of the, of the Navy if we're operating for the, with them, because that's where we have to go. We have to go up to their standard. He said, the biggest, the people who've had the most trouble are the army, who really are used to having things very spread out. The maintenance was very much in, in the army's case it wasn't so much a, a, as a it wasn't 
as uh, the maintenance was done in a not in a, a lax attitude, but it was done in a case of the British Army of the Rhine sort of standard, and it was sort of done a, suddenly finding out what the Royal Navy does to keep things maintained the whole time to keep the whole thing operating. The, the fact that the the biggest shock to him seemed to be that the Royal Navy, to his mind, pretty much re- stripped down and rebuilt all their aircraft every four or five years from the scratch up to the fact that by the time it, an aircraft is gone for its service life, there is probably nothing on that aircraft, including a large chunks of the airframe, which actually started life with it. It's a, The only thing that's kept constant with their aircraft is its airframe number. Everything else has been stripped down to bare bones and rebuilt to make sure it's going to operate exactly as you need it to operate when you're the other side of the world from your infrastructure base, because that's how the Royal Navy approach things. They're always thinking we're going to be we could be in the Pacific and all our supplies and infrastructure base is back in the UK. It's a legacy of the interwar years in many ways of the planning in the 1920s and 1930s, which had led to the building of HMS, HMS Unicorn. It's this whole thing of we're going to be operating a long way away from our from our supplies, from our infrastructure. What we take with us has to work. We aren't going to have the space to maintain it or store it or draw supplies from a big dump of supplies down the road or this, that, the other to get it operating. If it's not operating and we don't have the stuff with us to fix it, it is dead weight. You might want to have a chat with the Royal Australian Navy. I think they've been having to um, bring its army uh, and its air force up to speed because of the Canberras, because, um, you know, they use Chinooks from them heavily now. They use um, the army's version of the Merlin. I'm not sure what, what, what it's called. It's mental blank on that. And they're using the Tiger Army Attack Scout helicopters. So um, I guess that's one area where... The, uh, that that particular path has been trodden, <laughs> yeah. and I suspect yeah. those lessons are, have been learnt or are being learnt um, by everyone involved. And I guess once again, it comes back to that argument being you made earlier, Mister Clapp, about how having everyone in the same room talking to each other makes a massive difference. So you've got your army command staff, your um, air, air command staff, and your, your ship command staff all there in the one room. Um, communicating that, well, actually, we might not be able to get the uh, Chinook up because we forgot to bring uh, a certain amount of, uh, you know, the, the greaser or something. It's it's, um, it's, it's it's those things that make all the difference, isn't well, when, it, really? When, when hey, you've got... You, sorry, you're quite right. Can I just say that um, some years after, after it was all over, I, um, I think he was a Welsh Guard sergeant was discussing it and he was apologizing for the the way that he had seen the hijacking and stuff going on and he said but of course in the central front that's how we operate if if um, a civilian lorry comes along and we're desperately short of ammunition or something and we know it's on the hilltop just over to the north um, we go up to him and if he doesn't doesn't like it we draw a pistol on him and say jump out and we'll drive it up there and we just commandeer it and take it and cap, and he can pick it up when we've done the offload. And he said, I'm afraid that was the mindset that um, you, we were operating under the Falklands. And I think this is 
you know, that was a very kind of him to say so, I thought, to me. I have to, to add into one of the maintenance things. It's not actually about services and different service patterns. It's the experience of what they operate in, because the reason the Navy does all that is because of salt water. And I remember an army sergeant, a maintenance officer from who was part of the Apache deployment on uh, during Libya, who came. Who I was chatting to at something at King's and um, he said, yeah, we, we'd never re- we'd thought the Navy were just making a fuss. And then after operating the saltwater environment, we realized that it's not the Navy being pedantic or annoying or into service reliably or that. So it's literally as saltwater gets everywhere and will destroy everything given half a chance. And you just don't have it uh, sure in the same things unless you were operating. The closest you could get it was if you were operating off an island in the middle of an estuary. It's that salt water. It gets in the air. It gets everywhere. You need about three times the amount of grease. Anything, any patch of rust you have on the ship, any in, any indentation you have on the aircraft, on the airframe, will get, develop rust in seconds. You turn your back on it. He, he, he was had been drinking a couple of pints by the time when he was explaining it, but he was going, you know, full me on energetic on how annoying salt water makes things. <laughs> and he, he, he said, afterwards, I, I had two things, missions in life. One of them was never to be deployed with an aircraft aboard a ship ever again, because I don't know how the blooming Navy do it. <laughs> and I also um, guess um, your argument is that it very much supports the inter-service um, preference for different uh aircraft and equipment because if you don't have commonality then you won't have that temptation to pill for each other's equipment would you <laughs> well yeah. i mean i suppose in in some ways it actually it reminds me of a a little rhyme that i read that was written in the navy in world war Two, which that, it kind of sums up the whole maintenance thing which is that they said okay right so uh, in the RAF, the officers always say the landing is fine as long as you can walk away. But in the fleet air arm, the prospects are grim if you botch up your landing and the pilot can't swim. <laughs> um, it's uh, it, it kind of encapsulates the whole thing because it, it's like, well, the army with the best will in the world, if they're sitting on in Germany waiting for the Russian hordes to arrive, if a tank breaks down. Okay, well, you're walking home, I guess, but that's about it. You send something out, tow it home. It sits in a hangar for a bit, waiting for somebody to find out what's broken, or if it's its chieftain, how many things have broken this time. <laughs> um, but if you don't be cruel about the chieftains, I learned to drive on one. <laughs> they're, they're, they're perfect. They're the best battle tank in the world if they find the right place to break down. Um, <laughs> but the uh, but in the, if you're in the the navy. Yeah, it's like if you're flying a Navy aircraft and the engine stops working, the sea is a very unforgiving mistress. And if you're in a, even if you're in a ship, if your engine stops working and there's bad weather, you're not safe. You might be in an 8,000 ton destroyer, but you're still not safe if you're caught in the middle of a storm and your main engines decide that, that now is the best time to distribute themselves across the engine room at high speed. Um, and so you have to have a much more stringent um maintenance schedule and have things to be more rugged in the first place and i mean this this also it it kind of shows in a lot of ways if you look at um sort of cross-service adoption of of um equipment because you think about how many how many um air force say aircraft have been adopted into navies and lasted more than five minutes mm-hmm. not many 
but how many aircraft have been built to navy spec and have then gone on to serve pretty much until the pilot's grandchildren have joined the air force services you've got the f4 phantom the buccaneer Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sea Harriers are still tooling around Yeovilton, even though no one wants to publicly admit it. <laughs> um, uh, even the FA-18, designed as a U.S. Navy aircraft, as a result, designed a lot more ruggedly to withstand the impacts and shocks of carrier landings. And there's FA-18s all over the place in places like Switzerland and Canada and Australia because they work and they don't break easily. And <laughs> um, it, 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 it it just goes it goes on like that. I mean, the, the how many um, how much of the RAF in the seventies, eighties, and even into the nineties was made up of Buccaneers and Phantoms that had been on Ark Royal and Eagle beforehand, and mm-hmm. they they in some cases they came into service before things like the Lightning, and they were still in service long after the Lightning was a distant memory. Yes, uh, they worked. Yeah, of course we have a very famous buccaneer squadron commander actually on here. So you know, if he fancies chatting a bit about how lovely the buccaneer is, I don't think any of the three of us would. Have yeah, we haven't got time for that. <laughs> That's another episode. Yeah. Well, speaking of time, I think two and a half hours. Yes. Uh... <laughs> I did promise Michael it was going to be ninety minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I've been wondering whether it was 12 o'clock or what it was, whether I got my watch wrong. Right. Thank you so much. To, thank you so much for providing a, a voice of reality amongst our musings and uh, meanderings. It's greatly appreciated. Yeah. It's no pleasure. I, just, I enjoyed it very much listening to it because it was far more up to date than I am. <laughs> I, I just find it a fascinatingly broad problem that mm. you've covered, to my mind, at this last few minutes, um, the differences between the services. And without trying to get caught up in a squabble or petty uh, argument, there are major differences in the way the Fleet Air Arm and the RAF are required to fly. Um, and it's easy for people just to turn around and say, well, they only fly aeroplanes anyhow, don't they? But there's a huge depth of things behind it all, which I was delighted to hear. Well, it, comes back, it, it, it comes right back to the point you made right at the very start of this um, podcast, which was log- logistics. And yeah. in, it, it, I guess that's what it funnels down to, isn't it? It's the logistics of the fleet air arm and everything that entails. It entails more than just the brand of grease you buy. It entails more than just having everything um, spread over an airfield or close together. It entails a whole different way of thinking and operating from, you know, sun up to sun up. You know? It does. And, and I think, I think to be, to be honest, it's like as, as much as we sort of us, us regulatory can theorize about things based on study of history, study of current events and such like, it is also vitally important to have the voice of, of someone who's actually been there and done it because it, it, it's, it always comes down to that, that balance. Like you said, almost at the beginning, there's no point in just saying, oh, academics, they're useless because academics can afford to have the time to study in depth an awful lot of stuff that's outside of the actual operational parameters of keeping a ship afloat, which tend to be the things that a lot of people are concerned about in the service. But 
equally um you think of all the major disasters of procurement and an operation that have been avoided because there were actual serving navy officers who actually knew how things worked who were able to turn around and say to some bright spark yes that that's all very well on paper however it will fail horribly in actual reality <laughs> and that is often the trouble the stuff on paper and it's it's something which you can very easily fall into it, because especially the longer you get away from actually having had and this is again terrible because you never wish for a war but the longer you get the further away you get from actually having done sort of the fighting and this is why the Falklands War is quite so important but again we are about two possibly even three technological generations now away from it people start to think less and less about what the reality of that war fighting is and more what their theoretical thing works on on a computer in a computer scenario or on a game on the sort of the massive war gaming they do and I'm a big fan of war gaming I'm a big ga a fan of the computer scenarios and working this out but there are limits to all of those because of you programming them. And what I love is I always use the example. I go, we talk about all this, but even years ago, Star Trek had the Kabashi Maru thing, which which um, Kirk, of course, managed to break. And it's mm. this great thing. And lots of technical people I know joke about that and love to bring it up. But they then when you start telling them, well, what happens if someone does that to your computer scenario? Oh, no, it won't happen in my computer scenario. And you go, well, you can. And then there's the real life scenario. And real life has humans in it. And humans are so much weirder and so much stranger than any computer can ever really fully quantify. Because there is always the chance that on that particular day, a, a rational, normal person who managed to get command of it, turn, uh, command of an organ of a force of thing, turns into a complete and utter moron. There is always the chance of that. Or they there steal a... a landing craft. <laughs> and yes. A computer simulation would never simulate someone stealing a landing craft because it's against the rules. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, that, that's the sort of thing. These things happen. Or a computer would also not simulate an officer standing there and telling a marine officer that oh i rank the same as you and i'm not t my, there there are too many supplies in that ship so i uh, in that landing craft so i won't put my troops on there you should go in reality what you know the, these sort of things they they don't in the computer scenario the computer it works the landing craft are going back and forth they're not nicked and everyone does everything logically no one has this sort of going of, well, these are my, or, in, or maybe it does happen with the computer scenario in that case, because they might have gone, well, these are my rules. I'm not supposed to do this on this rules because we're not supposed to load like this. Not thinking that those rules are developed in peacetime and then in wartime, you've got bombers which can come in. Uh, yes, short trip of high risk on landing craft, which has flammable scary bits, or being on ship, which is virtually unarmed in middle of bay. It's an easy equation for us to make now because we know how it works. But you can see both sides of the argument. If you're thinking about it from that officer going, well, this is my experience. These are my rules. This is what I'm supposed to do. We know the experience. We know what happened. And you might think they're the nicest way. Actually, you and Sotheby Taylor, who was the, aboard the landing craft at the time, was probably right because he was the landing craft experienced officer. But 
the Navy, the Army troops who were down there hadn't worked together. And I think that's the big lesson I've been drawing from today is it's, it's not just the ship designs which matter. It's getting the people to work together and getting them to buy into actually designing other ships. And I worry that sometimes people can go down funnels of thinking, this is how we're going to do it. We're sure it's going to operate, so we'll design everything around this one scenario. And it ain't going to be that scenario. True. But I find now just ranted so long, all three of you are going, please shut up, Alex. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's lunchtime I'm now. The um, wargaming in for the planning stage. If we'd had any wargaming at all, uh, in 82, the time when it would have been brilliant was when Fieldhouse, Admiral Fieldhouse, and a lot of his senior officers and staff came down and at Ascension, we um, sort of discussed in broad terms how the operation was going to go so that he could then brief Mrs. Thatcher and the Foreign Office and, and so on, uh, and a timescale to work out. It would have been quicker and clearer for everybody concerned if we'd gone through it stop by stop wargaming it. Um, I'm not sure how far it can go after that. I, I, I think uh, you don't want to take too much trust that you can computerize it all and do that. But it is useful in certain essentials and explaining to everybody in the command structure uh, as you go along and getting their minds working that that's a major threat because of this, this and this, you know, which has been shown up. Um, I don't, there's a, you, there's a line to be drawn, I feel, but it, it's, it's a very helpful thing. Or it would have been a very helpful thing. Mm -hmm. All right. So I Thank think. You. I think so thank you very much, everyone. Thank Absolutely. you. Uh, nice to meet you all. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> all right. Thank you to all the listeners. Uh, <laughs> I think the bilge pumps, which will come out the week after this, will be a return to sort of the normal three of us talking. But I have a feeling, looking at my two colleagues' faces and Michael also smiling away, that this might not be the last time we have Michael on bilge pumps. And <laughs> I'm thinking that from Alex's smile and Jamie's smile that they probably got already got ideas of things they'd like to ask him. <laughs> so I hope Michael has really enjoyed this because I, I, I think you'd like to see it. He'd probably like a little bit more discipline from us in terms of time, though, I suspect. <laughs> yes, we, we shall endeavour to do that next time. <laughs> we shall endeavour to be better disciplined with time. Uh, we'll let Jamie bring out his stopwatch next mm -hmm. time. <laughs> <laughs> We're not joking. He has one to keep me in Dragon's <laughs> Well, he, 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 Either that or, or Michael could threaten to put us before the mast. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much. Thank well. you to all the listeners. We hope you enjoyed. And remember, if you have any questions, please tweet at us and put the hashtag bilge pumps on there or join the Discord and we'll have the chat there. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, and goodbye. Bye. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. <laughs>